Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want Salon Perfect Nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? Feeling a little aggrieved. It always begins with you feeling aggrieved with me, basically, when you say something like that. You're not going to say I'm aggrieved with the milkman, are you? I'm not. I'm not. I feel like you kept something from me. Oh, no. The big furore over the Scots porridge oats box. Uh, you don't know what I'm talking about. Nope. I'm okay. I'm no longer aggrieved. I'm very excited. I came across a news story from two or three weeks ago. Can you picture Scott's porridge oats? Yeah. With the guy on the front. He's not tossing a caber, is he? He's holding a shot putt and he's about to hurl it. Yeah, I think Justine has those Scott's porridge oats, yeah. There's been a controversy because they have given the, the guy on the front of the box a makeover who is very typically a very strong-jawed, macho guy. They've given him a makeover and people are saying it looks like Ed Miliband. <laughs> are you serious? Please send me the picture. So I saw this in a Daily Mirror story. It's, it's from, as I say, three or four weeks ago. It says, Scott's porridge oat man's millennial makeover branded wimp and like Ed Miliband. It says wimp and like Ed Miliband. I don't think there is a suggestion that you, you are a wimp. <laughs> I mean, it's a stretch. I don't love the headline, if I'm honest. Scott's porridge oats man millennial makeover branded wimp. And like Ed Miliband. No, but it says, it doesn't say wimp like Ed Miliband. It says wimp and like Ed Miliband. There is a distinction there. But shouldn't there have been an Oxford comma after the, <laughs> after wimp, wimp and like Ed Miliband? I think Don't it's implied. Think? I think it's implied. I think I might have to take it up with the mirror and have a and insist on a correction that there's a, there's a co- an Oxford comma after wimp. Given that your wife clearly likes both you or at least i think uh, only sometimes and this porridge uh yeah would you consider as a little wedding anniversary treat for her dressing up as the uh the, the scots porridge man a kilt in a vest yeah she's in bed reading you'll say i'm just going to brush my teeth and then come in dressed as the scots <laughs> porridge oats man what a lovely treat for her that would be 
Okay, if you supply the shot put, you're on. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I can imagine you on a cereal box. Really? What, in a, in a, yeah. in a kilt with a shot put? You know, as a cornflake, maybe? Uh, <laughs> or, I think that's not the first you know, time you've said that. Uh, or as a sort of, you've sort of, a resemblance to a lovable cornflake or a or a um he said uh digging deeply uh the honey monster maybe oh you, i think you, there is a slight resemblance to the honey monster yeah what was his catchphrase tell him about the honey mummy tell him about the honey mummy i, I think i might i might need to work on that a little bit i'm not quite sure i'm there with it yet well thank you for pointing that out to me i do i'm i'm appreciative Sort of. See, I thought yeah, I, th- I thought you'd been covering it up. I thought you knew about it and were covering it up and trying to prevent me from using it as podcast fodder. No, it's such good podcast fodder, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. People have to go online and tweet about it and whatever else, don't they? Mm. Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. Well, look, Jeff, as you know, a big theme of the podcast throughout our 193 episodes uh, has been the need for big change. And we thought we'd bring together two individuals who've got really interesting perspectives on the need for big change and how to make it happen. First, we're talking to Martin Sanbu, an economics writer at the Financial Times. He's written a lot about why this is a moment that demands a transformation of our economy and what the transformation could look like. Last year, he wrote a book called The Economics of Belonging. It's really worth a read. We'll be asking him about some of the ideas in it. And then we're talking to Heather McGee, one of the leading thinkers on the US left at the moment. Her new book, The Sum of Us, argues that racism has been a barrier to adopting policies that would benefit everyone in America. We'll be talking to her about her argument and what it means for building coalitions for transformational change. And for a cheerful person this week, I saw a film uh, a little while ago called The Reason I Jump. Uh, And it's about the experiences of people living with non-speaking autism. And it's an incredible film. And I, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to the person behind that film who is documentary maker jerry rothwell who's going to be our cheerful person what's your reason to be cheerful well my reason to be cheerful is after much sweat tears agony uh and that's just what you've had to go through um my book is finally coming out oh i thought you were talking about your 10th wedding anniversary when you said no sweat tears agony (laughs) no that's the porridge oats yeah so it's finally coming out if you listen to this before up to Wednesday, you can still get the book at 30% off the full price. Uh, go to waterstons.com and enter the promo code CHEERFUL. Um, if you're listening after Wednesday, I'd still like you to buy the book. It's very reasonably priced. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for saying it. But no, it's. Are you, you going to go on the one show? Uh, I don't know about that. Why? Richard and Judge, I'm just wondering where we can see uh, the oh. TV appearances for Ed. Well, I'm going to try and do as much um, as much as I can, you know. Well, look, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that the book would never have happened without you. So you talking to me or the listener? Uh, the listener. No, I, I was talking. I was actually talking to you, but it's true of the listener as well. But um, I, I'm incredibly grateful, as I say in the book, to you uh, for having convinced me that there were not only big ideas out there, uh, but that there was an audience for them, uh, and that's what the book tries to build on. And in the next few weeks, we'll be talking about some of the themes of the book um, and some of the people. Uh, who are the kind of, if you like, the stars of the book, not us, but but the people who've made change happen on the ground. And and hopefully, for those who've read it and the people who've given me feedback, they've been said sounded relatively optimistic and positive about... They say it's made them feel relatively optimistic and positive, which I hope is the purpose of it. It's great. Thank you so much. And what's your reason to be cheerful? I went with my son to pick out his glasses. Oh, that's a big moment. 
Yeah, when I was a kid, I just really wanted glasses. And he's not upset about having glasses. No, he's quite excited as well. Wow, that's good, isn't it? Were you upset when you needed glasses? I think I wasn't very happy. Oh, I just felt like it was the missing piece of my face. It fitted in with my identity as a, as a bookish, nerdy kid. Here's to myopia. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to talk to us about the idea that now might just be the time for big change, we're going to speak to European economics commentator at the Financial Times and author of The Economics of Belonging, a radical plan to win back the left behind and achieve prosperity for all. It's Martin Sambu. Hello. Hello. Now, before we get started, I believe you're a former pupil of Ed's. He taught you. We were definitely in the same seminars. I don't know if you formally had a sort of teacher-pupil relationship. You're misinformed. You're Jeff, is, <laughs> Jeff is misinformed. What era are we talking, Martin? What era of Ed? Uh, well, it, it, it was the era before everything changed, for sure. I'm not talking about Ed, but everything. Mm. It, it was sort of pre-global financial crisis. Uh, it, 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 was still, it was still the end of history, I think. <laughs> it was two thousand. It was two thousand and three, wasn't it, Martin? As I said, still the end of history. History had yeah, had, yeah. had still ended. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and were you looking around thinking we are the architects of the new era? Then, well, I mean, back then it sort of felt like it was all tweaking was all that remained, right? That was the big delusion, of course. Maybe that takes us to your book very conveniently. Why is tweaking not enough? Well. As, as, I, as I sort of started saying, it wasn't enough then, and I and many, many others, I think, and I would say much of the centre-left and the, and the third way, uh, was guilty of the same mistake. Um, things seemed to be going well. Inequality, okay, we knew it was rising, but it seemed it could be dealt with. Uh, and there was still, we were still living in this post-1989 glow. What we've learned the hard way, should have seen it coming, and a few people did, perhaps, uh, was that too many people were being left behind by economic change and had been since the 1980s. And a backlash was going to form. And that's kind of one of the arguments I engage in in the book is, you know, what caused these big backlashes in 2016? The argument about whether it's because of economics or it's more of a cultural values battle. And, and I'm very much on the economic side in that I think economics it was the most, the deepest driving force, even if the politics we have now has a very cultural value laden tinge to it. Uh, I think economic changes since the 1980s drove economic and therefore political polarization. We should have caught that earlier. It's just about not too late to do it, but we'd better change the economy now. And you call it the economics of belonging. Tell, tell us a bit more about that idea. You know, I've already mentioned 2016 and like many others, I spent the years after the Brexit referendum and the Trump election trying to make sense to myself uh, how this had happened. This, this massive rejection of liberal democracy in its heartlands. And I tried to listen quite seriously to the leaders of those movements, the populist right wing, to, to put it very simply. Trump, the Brexiters, Marine Le Pen, Alternative for Germany, all of these movements. Uh, so I tried to listen to what they said. And there's a core of it that's about the economy uh, that I think is a big part of what appeals to their voters and is also true. We've seen economic change 
as we shifted from an industrial society to uh, to an economy based on knowledge services or driven by knowledge services, that people with higher education, higher formal education, uh, people in cities rather than smaller places uh, would benefit more than those with less education and those in smaller places. So there was an increased regional inequality, increased income inequality, increased wealth inequality, all of which kind of all hit the same group negatively. Belonging is is not the word they use, but could use. They're basically saying, look, the economy has changed in a way that you no longer belong. There's no place for you here. You don't belong to the way society is run. The economy as it's run now doesn't belong to you. So let's start by accepting uh, that description of the economy that I've set out and own it and say, look, this needs to be fixed and it can be fixed. But it's not these guys who are going to fix it for you. What's striking to me is that when I was Labour leader and raised some of these questions, maybe there would be argument whether the analysis was right. Uh, Now the question is not, is the analysis right? The question is, well, what are we going to, what's the right thing to do about it? Accepting the problem is one part of the story, I guess, is the first part of the story. You won't get anywhere until you accept that there is something that needs changing. And, and I think the pandemic has reinforced this. It's, the pandemic has accelerated things in a number of ways. It has intensified the sort of unsustainable inequalities we've been talking about. It has hurt the people who were already at the lower margin of the labour market, people in manual work. They were both more exposed to ill health and covid and more at risk of losing their jobs, right? And all of this has kind of been playing out in plain view. It can't be denied anymore. And also something political has changed in that the appetite for doing something big has clearly increased because, you know, we every leader, every government leader was forced willy-nilly into becoming an accidental radical in March of last year. And once you've done that, there's no going back, right? Uh, in the sense that you can't just pretend that these big, government measures can't be taken. And I feel like there's there's a suggestion in what you're talking about before that there was this attitude that we 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 almost had to resign ourselves to some of this as a side effect of of globalization or what a post-industrial future looks like. But you grew up in Norway and the Nordic countries have handled this and responded to these changes differently and and arguably better than elsewhere. Can you talk to us a bit about that and and how much of it is just political culture uh, and the choices that have been made and because of that? You're right to bring up that that I grew up in Norway and, you know, Norway or Scandinavia in the uh, late 70s, early 80s when I was a child, probably the most egalitarian modern societies that have ever existed. But they have navigated the changes over the last couple of decades better than most other countries. But but one important point is that it's not because they're less globalized, right? They're more globalized. The Nordic countries are all highly globalized, very open uh, economies, small open economies, the kind of archetype almost. I think the Nordic societies have been much better at making change safe. They have not resisted change. They have not resisted the technological change, automation, that sort of thing, robotization, that I think is really behind the economic changes we've seen in the West over the last 40 years. They've embraced them and they've found ways to make sure that they benefit as many people as possible. And that and that takes us on to the um, to the 
proposals in the book. Talk us through your broad approach and, and, and just for our listeners' benefit and some of the policies that would be, would be part of it. So, so let me pick up uh, from what I just said, uh, embracing change, making change safe. So I use this analogy, not an analogy, it's an example in the book about the business of uh, washing cars. Um, and uh, I noticed when I was living in the US, how if you wanted to get your car washed there, so at the time we were there together, Ed, uh, you would usually drive your car into the the service station, and they uh, you would you would have three or four men with washcloths typically descend on your car and wash it by hand. When I was growing up in Norway in the eighties, the only way to get your car washed was to drive into the service station, and there would be those big blue rollers. And if you were a kid, you'd sit inside the car, and it would kind of wash over you, and it was fun to wash. This is a job that can be done by a machine. In some economies, it's done by a machine. In others, it's done by human labor. And there's been too much of a temptation in many countries uh, based on the idea of preserving jobs, you know, making sure that there are jobs for people to avoid automation, right? I see those as kind of two different models of an economy. You want to get the machines in place, but then what do you need in order to make sure that there are higher productivity jobs for enough people? So you get rid of the bad jobs. How do you get the good jobs in return? Well, I think we need to be much more in favor of a more constantly high-pressure demand economy. So use monetary and fiscal policy more while using things like higher minimum wages, better work standards, better enforcements of those to make sure that businesses don't choose to use cheap labor. So that's kind of two things. You regulate the labor market well, you have an aggressive macroeconomic policy, and the third leg of that stool has to be, it's often said, but it can't be repeated often enough, skills policy, education policy, spending enough money on equipping people for more demanding, higher productivity jobs, and spending money on making it easy to shift from worse jobs to better jobs. And, you know, maybe one way of putting that is to say, so far, so Scandinavian, but then you propose a universal basic income. Talk to us about the universal basic income and the role it plays in, if you like, um, being the sort of platform for the kind of economy you've just been talking about? Many people argue for a universal basic income uh, on a sort of poverty reduction welfare policy grounds. You know, that that's fine, but those are not my arguments. I think universal basic income is a good policy on productivity grounds and on power grounds. Let's start with power. Uh, a universal basic income is the one policy that will allow a worker to say no, to leave a job that's exploitative or bad or simply badly run. I mean, we hear so many stories of people who work on zero low-hour contracts, for example, unpredictable shift patterns, and who have to arrange childcare at very short notice or lose their job, or have to get up at three in the morning to get to the job to see if there's any work for them that day, or work for an hour and be sent home with no more pay, all of these things, right? Now, some of this can be regulated away, but I also want the individual, him or herself, to be empowered to say, no, I'm not going to do this. This is stupid. You know, get your shift pattern in order a couple of weeks in advance so that we can plan. Or if not, I'm going to go and take my labor somewhere else. Um, I think that sort of thing, uh, it both is important for the empowering effect it has. It gives uh, a basic dignity to everyone. But what will be the effect well, look, if businesses can't rely on workers sucking up whatever they throw at them, if they can't 
change shift patterns on the day of the shift in question. Well, then they either have to up their game or go out of business. So, so I find that an incredibly compelling argument, and if I may say so, incredibly compellingly put just now. Um, and in my in my book, I am very much sort of open to the universal basic income. How do you respond, though, to the to the the challenge of cost? Let, let, let's assume the principle is accepted. Somebody put it this way, which is. Um, an affordable UBI is inadequate and an adequate UBI is unaffordable. Now, how, how would you respond to that? Yes, no, it's a, it's a very good question. I think there are three answers to give. Uh, the first is, let's count the cost correctly. It is, is not as big as it looks. That's the first answer, that it's not as big as, as people will sometimes say. It's still big. I, I accept that. So uh, my second point then is, look, is it worth it? at the sort of tax rises, yes, that we would need to, to have in order to, to fill the gap. But there are other things you can, you can do. I advocate a wealth tax, and I think a, a wealth tax could raise several percent of GDP. Uh, that would go a long way. But the bigger point is, uh, would it be worth it if you believe that it would actually make the economy more productive? And that's how you need to think about it, right? Your economy may be bigger as a result. That's not how we conventionally count it. But this is what we have to think. Third answer, very quickly, what's the alternative, right? The alternative to UBI isn't that we don't have any, uh, any welfare benefits, it's means-tested benefits. So, you know, it's not as expensive as you think, it's still worth it, and what's the alternative? Let's talk about, you've given a very um, eloquent exposition of your, of your argument in the book, and we've talked a little bit about the circumstances we're in. When you look at... Um, what is happening, say, with Biden, um, does it give you hope that, that, that things are going in the direction of the kind of big change that you want to see? It does. Uh, Biden's or Bidenomics, if you like, uh, is a very bold and hugely exciting experiment. I finished writing this book, you know, in the months before the pandemic arrived and I was writing then, look, it's better to go big than to go incremental. You kind of need a big push, big in scale and in scope. And that seems to be what Biden is doing. Now, we don't know. It's an experiment, right? Uh, I think just the fact that he's doing it is changing the conversation elsewhere. So that makes me hopeful. But, you know, if nobody tried it, we wouldn't get anywhere. So it's clearly better than nobody trying. But then there's a possibility that it may actually work, it may produce the sort of results I hope for, he and his team clearly hope for and expect. Uh, and if that's the case, then we are really at the sort of uh, 1933 moment or 1970s moment where the whole way we think about the economy completely changes. And that would set the course for other countries for decades to come. Let me ask you a final question. Uh, and, and what's good about this question is it doesn't rely on elections because it's about the Jeffocracy, which is uh, Jeff as the benign dictator. And uh, I'd say that after this interview, there's a sort of case for putting a, a big kind of dose of the uh, Sandboocracy uh, as part of the Jeffocracy. Martin, if you could have one thing for the Jeffocracy that you would start putting into practice from your from your book, um, what would it be? 
do something that is both really hard politically to reverse and makes a big difference right away. Uh, you know, in the US, maybe here's something like a doubling of the minimum wage in the US. Biden has promised that. He will still try, I think, to get it through. But that sort of thing. You want to go for things that are both that both make a quick, real difference and are very, very hard to reverse. So, you know, get those gains that both show that you can make a difference and that are there to stay. Well, look, Martin Sandbu, uh, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, the book is The Economics of Belonging. Um, uh, I strongly recommend it to people. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, to talk further about this idea of big change and what it looks like, I'm delighted to say that we're joined from the United States by Heather McGee, who's the former president of the Demos think tank in the US and author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be with you. First of all, talk to us about your experience working as, a, I think, a self-described policy wonk <laughs> yes. um, and uh, from one wonk to another. And, I feel uh, left out here. I was never well, a wonk. You're, you're a sort of wonk. You're a quasi wonk. And I'm an amateur wonk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a sort of uh, yeah, an honorary wonk. Um, uh, what, and why it prompted you to write the book? Well, I spent nearly two decades helping to build and then being the president of a, a US-based think tank called Demos, which is dedicated to addressing American inequality, inequality in our democracy and our economy, which we saw as inextricably linked. And, you know, this is this is a progressive think tank trying to move policies like raising the minimum wage, uh, advancing universal health care, restoring free college, which we've gone a very long way away from in the United States, uh, strengthening the power of labor unions. And, you know, we would bring the data about widening inequality, the way that 40 percent of adult workers were paid too little to meet their basic needs and 1% of the population had more wealth than the entire middle class. And we'd bring that kind of data to policymakers and basically get a shrug. And it really felt like I was missing something. Like we, all of us on the left in the US, were, were, were kind of going into battle with one arm tied behind our backs. And so a year into the Trump administration, I made the somewhat crazy decision to quit my dream job running this think tank and travel the country. I went on a number of trips across the country, talked to hundreds of Americans about not just the economy, but the deeper questions of st status and belonging and, and what we're worth and what we owe to one another. And those in the U.S. are questions that always seem to turn on race. And then talk to us about the argument of the book. And, it, and there's a, a very sort of compelling metaphor, which is about public uh, swimming pools in places such as Montgomery, Alabama, and what happened to them. So we all know that the United States had in the 1930s and 40s and 50s kind of figured out the formula for broadly shared prosperity. We had what uh, economists call the Great Compression. It was a period of time where wages tracked productivity. There were high levels of collective bargaining, where we had the greatest middle class expansion, you know, many say the world had ever seen. And all of that was really created out of a, an ethos born out of the crucible of the Great Depression and the lessons of the first Gilded Age. It, it was the New Deal ethos that said that government had a role to play in ensuring higher and higher standards of living for our people. And so there were so many public goods and investments in that period. Uh, and one of them 
course, a very small part of it, but was this very kind of American phenomenon of these grand resort-style public swimming pools. It was a public health imperative. It was a sort of community-building function. These could hold thousands of swimmers at a time. And they were, like so much of the public goods of that period, in most parts of the country, segregated and for whites only. And and I use the story of the segregated pools and what happened after integration, which was that many towns across the country, faced with court orders to integrate their pools, decided to drain them instead, decided to actually drain out the water, fill them up with dirt. Uh, I went to Montgomery, Alabama, which was just one of many places where this happened. And their big thousand plus swimmer pool was drained. They closed their entire parks department starting in 1959. They kept it closed for a decade rather than integrate it. We had a Supreme Court case in 1971 that where the court actually blessed this widespread practice of ending public goods in order to avoid integration. And for me, it really stood in for this idea of the drained pool the kind of core common sense logic that allowed white Americans, the majority of whom had had a very strong support for a robust role for government in the New Deal era through to the late 1950s, to turn their backs on that formula that had created really the white middle class once it was clear that those benefits and public goods would have to be shared with people that they'd been taught to disdain and distrust. And we saw a massive political shift. And you call this zero-sum thinking, zero-sum uh, politics, and it doesn't just play out in public amenities like swimming pools, does it? You, you, Your argument is it goes much, much broader than that in the United States. Exactly. When you think about all the public goods that were provided in the New Deal era, it wasn't, of course, just swimming pools, right? It was the creation of Social Security for the retired and the disabled. It was uh, you know, a massive investment in what you would call social housing and in the provision of a, a government-backed mortgage market. And in the United States, that was all racially exclusionary. And so this whole ethos of public goods to ensure a high standard of living had an asterisk. And so what happened was, after the civil rights movement, you began to see the neoliberal era of austerity, of a shift away from high taxation, high labor unions, high government investment in in infrastructure. You saw the draining of the pool of public resources for everyone. And we see in issue after issue, I, I found it in, in the roots of America's sort of singular opposition to really do doing what it needs to do on climate change, the way that our mostly white male conservative party is so opposed to anything that might really address global climate change. And sociologists see a link between sort of white male identity politics and and that climate denialism. Uh, The attacks on labor unions became much more fierce and and successful once workforces were integrated. And and I traveled to Mississippi to be with workers in 2017 who talk about not wanting to join a union because it would put them on sort of a level playing field with Black folks. This is really about the way that racism drives economic inequality. Racism in our politics and our policymaking ends up having a cost for everyone. And do you propose an alternative? Um, can you tell us about the idea of a solidarity dividend and, and what we can do to promote a, a different narrative to this zero-sum politics? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I left 
my job uh, at the think tank and hit the road out of a place of frustration and despair. Right in the beginning of the Trump administration, I was feeling like, how you know, how did we get to this place? And yet, in conversation after conversation, in every place that I went. I was able to see signs of people rejecting the zero-sum idea that progress for people of color has to come at white people's expense, coming together across lines of race to unlock what I began to call these solidarity dividends, these gains that we can achieve, but only by creating a multiracial majoritarian coalition to solve our common problems together. Things like higher wages through... um, campaigns like the Fight for 15, which was really cross-racial organizing of minimum wage workers to demand $15 an hour and a union. The uh, the cleaning up of, of polluted air and the creation of a sort of new green economy that I found in a, a very polluted uh, city in Richmond, California, where there was a multiracial coalition that came together there to take on their big polluter. Uh, in that case, it was Chevron, the massive oil refinery. If we can put aside sort of the original lie of the zero-sum racial hierarchy, I don't think there's anything we can't accomplish, but we have to accomplish it together. And you've given us lots of examples there of the the potential of that kind of approach. Do do you think, how optimistic do you feel that the Biden administration is beginning to refill the pool, the metaphorical pool in the United States? Well, you know, it's so interesting because throughout the book, I make it clear that this zero-sum idea is the strongest tool of the plutocratic elite to keep the working and middle class divided from one another. That's where the zero-sum story first gained its utility, and that's who's deploying it today in propaganda and right-wing conservative media. It's always about scapegoating immigrants and people of color, and that that optimally just really serves the very wealthy. And so... What I hoped would happen, and I'm, of course I finished writing the book before the uh, the Biden administration began, but what I hoped would happen was that this, you know, older white gentleman who was kind of riding atop a multiracial coalition of progressive white folks and black and brown and Asian American folks and, and young people particularly would be able to create a story of people coming together to take on concentrated power to actually reject the zero sum. And he has, he started using that language and saying that racial equity is in the interest of the entire country and all of us, which is just really wonderful to see. And then he came out of the gates with really, honestly, the most progressive uh, spending forward public good uh, and public investment agenda that we've seen from from any party in, in my lifetime. I want to end on that point, Heather, because your book is obviously about the United States, but there is... I think, significantly broader relevance of it. Uh, You were part of a project called the Race Class Narrative. And in a sense, your book very much speaks to that agenda. I know you don't, you won't want to sort of say, how do you apply this in particularly, particular different countries, but this is a book about the US. But just talk to us a little bit about how you think it might have broader relevance, the argument of the book. I think it does, absolutely. You know, obviously our political narratives are not the same, but they sure do rhyme, right? There, There is certainly, um, has always been with this story of, of, of sort of the Reagan-Thatcherite agenda of of Brexit and Trump, right? There have been these moments where there have been political narratives and political movements that have been very similar. And today I look at the ways in which we are certainly across the globe facing, going to face more and more 
involuntary movements of people, right? Whether it's climate change or wars and how much that demographic shift, whether it's the coming home of, of you know, of colonial subjects and, you know, in the current Commonwealth or it's refugees is going to challenge the sense of solidarity that comes from people who are, you know, ancestral family, right? And once you start making up nations that are people who are ancestral strangers, do you still have things like the NHS, right? Do you still have a sense of seeing yourself in the other? Do you still have a sense of solidarity? Or are you vulnerable to elites, which it often is, using disinformation, misinformation, scapegoating, demonizing political advertising and campaigns to make us shrink from one another. And I think that's going to be the challenge of of the next period, where all of our biggest challenges and obstacles as a globe are going to be ones we have to solve together. Inequality, corruption in our democracy, disinformation, pandemics, global climate change, these are going to take collective action. And collective action requires a healthy sense of the collective in our common humanity. Well, look, uh, we're really grateful to you for talking to us, Heather. The book is a really, really important and an insightful piece of work. It's the sum of us, what racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Well, what did you think? I found today's episode one of those incredibly exciting episodes. The podcast is about ideas and about big ideas. And yet I still sometimes find myself worrying that, you know, how, how could you get people on board with anything other than incremental change? And I feel really excited to hear Martin frame this as a, as a centrist idea and also the parallels with Joe Biden in the States. And... I, I really liked Heather's thoughts about how you build support and get people on board. The thing I took out of both of the conversations that I feel a bit like you is I'm a believer in big change, but it's quite good to have it sort of reinforced by people. You know, you go through those moments of doubt where you think, well, maybe big change is, you know, it's just so much harder. It feels harder. And then you have people coming along who are just very much advocates in in that camp and, 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 and both of them in different ways, finding a way, thinking of a way to do this, that it, it could have broad appeal. I think that's what both of them are thinking. You know, Martin, he's at the Financial Times, not known as a sort of revolutionary journal. You know, OK, he doesn't speak for the Financial Times, but I think it's interesting that somebody who would describe himself in the way that he does. Yeah, he's not, it's not like he's Jacob he Rees-Mogg, but it's not like he's John McDonnell either. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a very good, much better put than, than me. Uh, so that's really interesting. And then Heather, who's obviously thought incredibly deeply about these issues. And I think, I do think Heather is sort of, she's telling us something about America, obviously. But as she said, she's telling us something more widely about the prospects of sort of uniting people around a big agenda. And it, look, it's, it's sort of worth saying that, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to do this was it's obviously, it obviously fits in with the with the case I'm trying to make in in my book, and I, and I kind of tend to think of what Martin thinks, which is at least half the battle is persuading people that big change is necessary, and for all from for all else, for all else of the problems of the last few years, I think there are more people now who believe that than than before, 
Um, and then obviously there's a massive debate to be had about about what that change looks like. But at least at least you're going to hopefully there's a chance that the debate can take place on the right pitch. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For our cheerful person this week, I'm so excited to talk to the filmmaker behind an excellent new documentary, which is called The Reason I Jump, which is going to be in cinemas from the 18th of June. It's Jerry Rothwell. Hello. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ed. It feels exciting just saying that something's going to be in cinemas. I still haven't been back inside one. Have you, Jerry? No. I mean, the, we, we launched the film in Sundance in 2020, little knowing that, you know, that would be the last sort of physical screening for the next 18 months. How important is that as a, as a filmmaker of documentaries? Because so many of us these days, you know, watch, watch documentaries on Netflix or wherever, and there's almost been a resurgence uh, in the way people watch them. But wh- wh- why is having it on cinema screens still so important? I mean, I guess for a filmmaker, that sort of um, intensity of, of watching that you get in a cinema, um, you know, the, the people, you, you, they're there for the journey. You know, they can't be so much checking their phones or, or going, on to, going off to put the kettle on. I mean, with this film, we really sort of designed it around the cinema. It's got a kind of 360-degree Atmos sound, sound design, um, you know, where you can place a sound anywhere in 128 positions in the cinema. So it's like kind of we, we, we were totally focused on making it a cinematic experience. I think it's such an incredible film. Obviously, it's, it's, it's personal to you, but it's also an adaptation of the book, The Reason I Jump. I say an adaptation, it's, it's in a way, it's sort of the starting point for it, or, or it gives it uh, a framework or, or a structure. Um, t- tell us a bit about how you came across that book and, and what it is for people who uh, haven't encountered it. The Reason I Jump is uh, a book by a 12-year-old non-speaking autistic Japanese boy um, who wrote it, I think, 
you know, at that age of 12, when you kind of realize that um, who you think you are is different from who other people think you are. It's sort of as he becomes aware of his autism, I guess. And what he does in the book is answer 58 questions that he thinks, you know, people want to know about him. And he wrote it by by pointing to letters on a letterboard, um, kind of a really slow, painstaking process to um, to get out what are really sort of wise poetic thoughts I think um, and I went to meet him in, in Tokyo uh, he's now 26 and, and still writing he's now written I think eight books why was there such I mean there, there were questions around whether he wrote it at the time did you ask him about, about that where that came from and you know there's a cultural assumption that people who don't speak don't think or, or don't have the capacity for for sort of sophisticated expression and in the 90s, you know, there was this controversy around um, facilitated communication for non-speakers where this technique used where, you know, there would be support given to a person's arm in order for them to point to a letterboard. Um, and that, that technique was taken up very widely. And, you, you know, when it, when it got into scientific scrutiny, um, that suggested that a lot of their communications were being sort of manipulated or, you know, unconsciously shaped by the facilitator. And so it got very discredited. But I think what happened is, is that that then throughout, you know, that, that moment sort of throughout the notion that people who don't speak can have language and can communicate. I mean, when I went to visit Naoki, he used the letterboard completely independently. There's no one supporting his arm. He's able to type independently on a typewriter. So I guess it's 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 more about how neurotypicals have a have a real problem understanding kind of autistic modes of communication, and and the film uses as I say that book as the uh, structure to to then tell the stories of five people living with non speaking autism, uh, and it's brilliant not just that those stories are being told but the way that you 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 sound and imagery to give an idea of what that experience is like can you talk to us a bit about why it was so important to you to give give sort of such a full view of that experience i think i mean when when i first went to see Naoki, i think we were thinking about a film that was about him and one of the first things he said was you know he's excited about the idea of the film but he didn't want to be in it um and he didn't want it to be about him um which was a bit, a bit of a kind of blow you know <laughs> Oh, what are we going to do now? We have this text by a 12-year-old, no pictures um, and and no kind of story. Um, but I think actually that was a gift to the film, him, him saying that and doing that, because what it did was force us to think more imaginatively about how was this text relevant to... Um, other non-speaking people around the world not just as sort of not speaking for them not them as case studies of it but how might it sort of shift a viewer's perspective so that they kind of look at people's everyday experience in a slightly different way and the book is you know above all it immerses you in this sensory world you know this world of kind of intense sort of sounds and pictures and patterns and and distractions and and a kind of linguistic sort of sea of of sort of words and associations and memories um so it felt that that you know what we needed to do was to use the tools of cinema to try and get to that experience not to sort of put people in a in a simulation because i don't think that's possible but just to try and decenter you from the filters through which we usually see things and the five people whose stories you tell in the film uh span the globe 
how how did you find those people and those stories? I guess in the end, it came to that that each person takes us into a different aspect of of or we go into a different aspect of their experience. They're really different. I mean, I hope people come out of the film recognizing that you know autism isn't one thing, and the, or that all autistic people are alike. You know, hopefully, the diversity of people in the film points you the other way. But so, for example, Amrit, who's this artist in India, lives in this high rise block of flats on the edge of Delhi. Um, and, you know, began drawing as a way of kind of communicating her day to her mother. And then the other kind of characters in the film, you know, sort of take you into different aspects which are talked about in the book. So there's a section with a young lad, which is particularly about time and memory and the experience of sort of nonlinear time or, or of the presence of memories as a very intense uh, sort of visceral experience for people. What's been the reaction, uh, Jerry? of um people to the film in- including people with autism it's been great you kind of never know really when you sort of finish a film like this kind of working away in an edit suite uh, how people are going to respond I have no idea really i mean i've had some really sort of gratifying responses from autistic people who, who've sort of said they feel that it it kind of captures some aspects of their experience that they've not seen represented in cinema before so that that's great and and, it, and obviously not you know not everyone, you know, there's people that, that, that feel the opposite to that. And, and just on that, you show this rapid prompting method of uh, communication with these boards in the film. Um, that when, when you start Googling that, it turns out it's, it's somewhat controversial, or at least there's a lot of discussion around it. How did you reach the position that you reached where you felt that it was an important part of the story to show? So, I mean, actually, so the thing the thing you see in the film actually isn't rapid prompting method. It's that they've learned through a different method called spelling to communicate. I mean, there's lots of these different methods around using spelled communication. You know, I began, you know, as sceptical as anyone, you know, like you, I sort of Googled a bit around it and was, oh, I don't want to be making a film based on a lie, you know. Um, but I think there, there are a few things that really convinced me. I mean, first of all, just spending time with non-speakers who use letterboards, Um and sort of being really clear that their communication was coming from them and not from a facilitator, often because the facilitator wasn't anywhere near them at the time they were making the communication. I mean, certainly with Nauki, you know, Nauki considered a typewriter and type your poem and it might take an hour, but, you know, the, the poem will be coherent and his. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think facilitated communication, that 1990s method, which is kind of, you know, is still used as a way of learning to use boards it's it's clearly really problematic you know it's clearly susceptible to influence but i i think that the the terrible consequence of that controversy is that a whole generation of young people have been deprived of the means of communication just finally what do you want us most to learn from the film about the experience of people with non-speaking autism i i think our societies have been very quick to judge from the external, haven't we? I mean, you know, uh, not so long ago, about 20, 30 years ago, when I started working with autistic people, they were in long-stay hospitals. Um, and, 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 and I think there's a kind of judgment about external behaviour, uh, about the stims people use, about the language they use, um, about kind of their way of moving, 
which is a very kind of normative judgment that we place on people and actually often has nothing to do with what's going on in their heads. Uh, so I hope it sort of drives people towards that incredible sort of literature of, of work by non-speaking autistics from which I think we can all learn a lot about our own neurologies and our own perceptions. Um, and I hope it kind of contributes to that, this sort of autism civil rights movement which we're seeing, which is really, I think, beginning to change, change things. Well, it's a, a beautiful film. I enjoyed it enormously, and I will go and see it again in the uh, in the cinema. I think because that's how it should be experienced. Jerry Rothwell, the film is the reason I jump. Thank you so much for talking to us. Brilliant. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. I'm eventually off to Hay on Wye for the book festival in my electric car with my family. Is that your... Are you surprising your wife for your 10th anniversary? Is that the surprise that you're taking her to watch you do some book promo at the... No, no, it's the... That's put, it, that, it will be into our 11th year by then. Um, uh, uh, so have you, have you pre-planned where you're going to stop and charge? Not yet, not yet. But I, I, it's going to be an interesting event at Hay and Why because... It's, it's very much restricted for obvious reasons. So I'm going to be there, and I think there'll be a handful of audience members there. But then most people will be remote. So I think we'll have Hay on Y to ourselves, more or less. We went, we went there. We did, uh, we, we did a live show at the we Where the Light Gets In festival we, a few years ago, didn't we? Of course we did. How dare I sort of forget? Very beautiful part of the world. Quite envious. No room in the electric car. I always think I could be like the Fonz figure in your family. Jumping the shark. No, not jumping the shark, no. <laughs> like the Cunninghams, uh, they were a family, and then the Fonz kind of oh, was part of their right? life. I think he lived in a room above the garage. Happy Days was on ITV, so I didn't watch it. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, uh, Is that right? Yeah. I didn't realise oh, that. You see, you give off strong Ralph Mouth vibes, so I thought he would have been a... A big influence on you in your early life. I don't think we should try and have Henry Winkler on the show. Oh, he's amazing. I love him. He's so good. He does a lot around children's literacy, doesn't he? And he's very good in Barry. Oh, yeah, but my wife found Barry a bit horrifying. I think you liked it, then it got a bit violent for you, didn't it? Yeah, I don't. I think you led us up. You led us astray. I didn't lead you astray. It's not my fault. I didn't know how squeamish you were at that point. Palm Springs was a great. Yeah. Palm Springs was a great. Um... Anyway, and I'm off to do Jesse Ware's podcast this evening. Oh, I look forward to both hearing that and hearing your report of it. Shall we thank our guests? Yeah, I'd like to thank Martin Sandbu and Heather McGee. And thanks to Jerry Rothwell, the film he was here talking about was The Reason I Jump, and you can see it at the pictures from the 18th of June. Emma Caution produces our podcast, Joel Pierce, uh, finds all the guests and does all the research and makes me and Ed seem at least slightly informed. And a hip, and hip. Hooray. And hip. No, no, and hip, I said. Oh, I Not thought you were hooray. doing a hip, hip, hooray for Joel. No, well, I can do that too, but I was saying, and he makes us look hip. He's backed up by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Uh, also, we said big... Uh, hello! Hello! To our friends at Left Foot Forward. <laughs> at this point each week, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been the man on the porridge oats box... He's been the aspirant honey monster. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.